0: This episode is brought to you by Yotta Energy. That's Y-O-T-T-A Energy. We all know energy storage is key to deploying renewables at scale. I've seen many energy storage solutions for commercial buildings over my years in climate tech, but not as impressive as Yotta's. Yotta Energy's PV-coupled ecosystem of solar plus storage solutions simply integrates within the standard solar installation process. Even better, their integrated storage technology can enable up to 60% more solar to be deployed on commercial buildings. With commercial buildings consuming 35% of electricity, that means Yada is making a serious dent in CO2 emissions. With the electrification of everything revolution underway, Yada Energy is poised to meet the growing demands of electrification by sizing solar plus storage resources to recharge electric vehicles as they future-proof buildings into distributed energy sites powering the grid of the future. Find out more at YottaEnergy.com and follow Yada on Twitter at Yada Energy. This episode is also brought to you by Ether Diamonds. That's A E T H E R Diamonds. If you're planning to propose or purchase a timeless gift for your partner, I couldn't think of a better purchase than Ether Diamonds. Ether Diamonds are the world's most sustainable diamonds and the only diamonds that are actually good for the planet. Ether creates the world's first positive impact diamonds made from captured CO2. In fact, every carat of Ether Diamonds offsets your personal carbon footprint for over a year. These are 100% real diamonds with a real impact. They're some of the highest quality diamonds you can buy and are certified by IGI, the world's largest independent laboratory for testing and grading gemstones and fine jewelry. Now you're no longer stuck having to choose between mined and regular lab-grown diamonds, both of which harm the environment. Ether offers the only truly sustainable diamonds on the market, requiring no ethical or environmental trade-offs. In other words, they're the only guilt free diamonds available in the world. To learn more about these revolutionary diamonds from AIR, visit their website at etherdiamonds.com and follow on Twitter at etherdiamonds. Hello, my fellow climate warriors. This is Matt Myers, and welcome to another episode of Climate Tech Cocktails, where we grab a drink or two with best in class climate tech founders to learn from their life journeys, dive into bleeding edge technologies, and have a laugh while we're at it. My guest today is Vince Romanin, CEO of Gradient. You can find Vince at Vince Romanin on Twitter and Gradient on Twitter at Gradient Comfort. Vince Romanin is the CEO of Gradient, which is on a mission to cool the world sustainably. Gradient's first product is an easier to install and easier to use heat pump that is quiet and gives you your window back. Without further ado, enjoy the show. Vince Romanin welcome back to the show. <laughs>
1: Hello, Matt. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, just to note that this is Vince's second time recording. I know. This so podcast. popular,
1: I get to be on the show twice.
0: <laughs> that or, uh, Just don't try to update your operating system on a computer that's older than two years (laughs) if you have a Mac. (laughs) (laughs) So what are we drinking this evening? We're drinking a whiskey smash. A whiskey smash. Perfect. And can we educate viewers what a whiskey smash is? Or I mean I I kind of did a rendition on it, so maybe it's fair that I can I, I should maybe describe what's in it. Let's do that. Okay, great. So it's got bourbon. Also has some mint is key, and then a uh, some orange bitters, and a lime twist. And um, of course, put some sugar water in there as well. That's what we're drinking. And first, cheers. Cheers. And welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. That's better the second time. That's better the second time. Yeah. See? There, yeah. there you go. Like <laughs> Everything's better the second time. This is,
1: uh, I, I hadn't had this cocktail before the show, okay. but I picked it because it first showed up in a book called the bartender's guide in 1862, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was a really, really common drink to drink in the American South yeah. in the 19th century. Uh, and I picked it because often you would be buying ice for your cocktails in the 19th century, even though in the 19th century, you couldn't make
0: ice. So why? (laughs) I don't want to talk about asking obvious questions here. Okay. So you couldn't make ice. Ice is uh, part of cocktails. Cocktails made ice popular. Right. Right. And you would buy ice
1: from someone who would cut it out of swamps and rivers and ponds in like frozen areas in the northern U.S. and Canada, and who would ship it to the southern U.S. Mm. So you could put it in food or drinks or whatever it was. That's how we got ice in the 19th century. A gentleman... Otherwise known as the Ice King, exactly Frederick Tudor, the Ice King.
0: (laughs) He sounds really um, intimidating. It's almost like he's a mobster or something, like an an (laughs) ice mobster. He probably was. He is. He was the foil in a, a
1: a story that's great to me because I'm a thermodynamics nerd, but a great story about how we first came upon the technology that is modern day refrigeration and air conditioning and heat pumps. It showed up in the 1854 a man named Uh, John Gorey invented a machine that could make Mm. ice for the first time. And this was competition against Frederick
0: Tudor's ice empire. Right. And there's a quote that I think is great about Dr. Gorey. It states, Dr. Gorey, a crank down in Florida, thinks he can make ice by his machine as good as God Almighty. In the New York Globe, 1852, hashtag Florida man. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Florida man was alive and well in the nineteenth century, and the crazy thing that he did was make ice from a machine and mm-hmm. This is an amazing story to me first of all, I think the reason that they ran this headline was probably due to lobbying of the likes of Frederick Tudor okay because he was selling ice uh, that he was shipping to the southern u s and this machine could upend that, but it 's really amazing that this person invented a machine that changed like so many things about the way we live our lives mm-hmm. um, and it was really met with complete
0: uh Complete and utter disdain. Damn him! (laughs) But um, to retrace to the beginning of this conversation, ice was popularized by Tudor by putting it into alcoholic beverages, otherwise known as cocktails.
1: Yeah, among other things. I think there was other other things Mm -hmm. that were happening with ice. I think the but food and beverage was definitely the first common use of ice. Well before it was Mm -hmm. commonplace to use. Whatever you're using to make things cold to make ourselves more comfortable.
0: So, we had ice. How'd we go from ice to air conditioning? Which, for listeners, if it isn't obvious, we're going kind of around the history of man made cooling. Exactly. (laughs) Um, A little bit of a history of cooling nerds. So, it starts
1: with the Industrial Revolution, 18th century, 1770 something. We're using machines to do work for the first time at a large scale in human history. And there is an engineering student named Sadie Carnot who studies them, first characterizes heat engines as devices where you could put something hot into them, put heat energy into them, take that energy back out at a colder temperature. Practically, this means lighting a flame with coal over an engine and get work out. And so this engine, put in heat, get out work, first was commonly in use because of the industrial revolution. Sadie Carnot also wrote that you could probably do this backwards. You could mm-hmm. probably build a machine where you put in work mm-hmm. and then you move heat from cold to hot, which is basically a machine that makes things cold. Mm-hmm. He publishes this in eighteen twenty four in a book called Reflections on the Motive Power of Fire.
0: Page Turner. Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. I would love to well, I mean, it's kind of like the it's kind of like a superhero origin story, except the uh-huh. superhero is the entire field of thermodynamics.
0: Yeah, maybe we could do uh, another episode where you just recite the I would book do that. Yeah. for everybody. Yeah,
1: <laughs> uh, Another great article is uh, Osborne Reynolds' paper where he writes the Reynolds number down for the first time. This is uh-huh. kind of like the same story for fluid mechanics. But anyway, so 1824, Sadie Carnot talks about heat engines and heat pumps for the first time, really formalizes the field of thermodynamics. And then 25 a little over 25 years later, Dr. Gorey, for the first time, builds a machine that can actually make things cold. Mm-hmm. He's a medical doctor. He wants to do it to cool patients. It works a little bit too well, and a bunch of frost develops in the coils of this machine, and he realizes he can make ice artificially for the first time.
0: So Dr. John Gory is making ice. We also have the Ice King, who's a self-made millionaire, cutting slabs of ice out of lakes and shipping it everywhere. How do we get From ice to air conditioning.
1: That takes a little bit longer. There's actually, it takes a while for people to accept the idea that they would make their buildings more comfortable with artificial cooling. Mm -hmm. And so Gory spends his career trying to build a business around his ice machine, most often with things like alcohol and food, Yeah, dies broke, penniless, and humiliated. Nobody really? accepts this tech as the way that they want to get their ice.
0: Really? Okay. So they don't want to get their ice from technology. They want to get it from Tudor? Exactly. They would, rather, ice they would
1: rather Frederick Tudor carve it out of a mm-hmm. pond, put it on a ship and ship it to other parts of
0: the world. Okay. Yeah. He was definitely lobbying. Right. He's paying for lobbyists <laughs> big time.
1: Yeah. And so the machine continues to be used in niche applications. I believe some version of his machine is used to cool. Is it James Garfield? On his deathbed after an eventually successful assassination attempt, 1890s. I don't know. One of the presidents, one of our Uh presidents uh, was assassinated in the 1890s and was kept cool with the ice machine. And then it's not until the early 19th century where you start to see this type of technology used for other things. First printing presses, eventually movie theaters. And then eventually after that, it makes it into our home.
0: Wait, but why was he kept cool with an ice machine if it was Garfield? At gorgeous. this time,
1: the first idea that Gory had for making ice or using this machine was to make ice cubes, put the ice cubes in a pan and blow a fan over it to make cool air to cool, cool patients. And so it was very common when patients were in a hospital and there was heat waves, especially in, in areas yeah. with not super hospitable climates, that cooling mm-hmm. a patient down was a life or death matter.
0: Right. So the first air conditioner was used where again? I think it was 1902. Uh, yes, that's
1: right. So the first air conditioner or sorry, you're probably referring to the first device that's used in an industrial setting to control humidity. I don't know if it was called air conditioner yet, but it was definitely okay. a descendant of uh, air conditioning as we know it today okay and and who created that? So there's a printing press in Brooklyn uh-huh. that would run paper through several different dyes to to get a color print, and in super humid days, the paper would expand or contract and make each successive color in the printing process not line up exactly with the previous. And so it would blur their mm-hmm. pictures. And so this printing company called an engineering
0: firm who staffed a young man to work on it named Willis Carrier. And people listening might find that name familiar because Carrier makes a lot of the air conditioners which are used today. Yes. And so he uh so this engineer Willis Carrier he creates this device which helps reduce humidity and this printing press facility. And then as you mentioned, later we get air conditioning, maybe like 20 years later, and it's really popularized by movie theaters. Yeah. Right. Which I, I think it's really interesting that when I sit back and reflect and realize that ice was popularized by cocktails and air conditioning was popularized by movie theaters. It's like, you know, they found these markets that are really about personal consumption mm-hmm. and comfort mm-hmm. and getting people to enjoy it while they're drinking or while they're watching Something to get them hooked. Yeah, it's also really
1: interesting to me how altruistic the original intentions were of this invention. Mm-hmm. Doctor Gory wanted to use it to keep his patients alive when there were extreme heat waves. Unfortunately, it was thwarted by someone who was making money selling ice for cocktails. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, it started off as like a, a way to really help humanity, and ended up being popularized with uh, I don't know what the word is, but I would say more uh, frivolous applications.
0: And so then, of course, we got. Air conditioners that are appearing in homes and in buildings Mm -hmm. where people work. Mm -hmm. And it just spreads like
1: wildfire. Exactly. It takes the first half of the 20th century from 1903, when Willis Carrier first invents the air conditioner for this printing press, until about the 50s or 60s before it really becomes accepted that, like, we're going to use this to make our spaces more comfortable. Mm -hmm. It starts in movie theaters and then goes to department stores. And then, like, eventually people. Are seeing these systems in enough commercial spaces that they start to get the idea that they would want them in their homes as well?
0: So, before we talk about the negative externalities of air conditioning, <laughs> let's talk about the positive externalities of air conditioning. What What are the positive externalities? Yeah, sure. So,
1: air conditioning, since it began widespread adoption in the U.S. around the mid uh, mid twentieth century, is responsible for about a seventy percent reduction in heat wave deaths. A lot of our cities are now built in areas that are in some ways not livable or at least not livable in the sense that we currently think of it without air conditioning like Phoenix, Arizona. Mm -hmm. And it's really been shown that people's air quality and comfort affects their health and productivity. And so it's in a lot of places a matter of health, productivity and development to have the types of devices that can make buildings livable in climates that aren't so livable.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, it's not just the United States, which is benefiting productivity-wise and GDP-wise from air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Also uh, in Asia as well, right? Yeah.
1: One city specifically that comes to mind is Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew was the prime minister of Singapore for about three decades. He was interviewed before he died and, and asked to what he attributed the su- success of Singapore. He grew his GDP by 100x over his 10 years as prime minister. And he listed two things to which he attributed the success of Singapore uh, one was multiculturalism, and the other one was air conditioning. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm, I'm sure there are other positive externalities of air conditioning, but let's also talk about the negative. Mm-hmm externalities of air conditioning and the problem thus uh, you all are solving, what are the negative externalities? Like we could touch upon first, maybe the coolants mm. that were in our use. So what, what were the first coolants yeah. that were used? Yeah, it's a bit ironic that the fact
1: that we use these devices to make ourselves comfortable in our homes is making the rest of the world less comfortable and Mm. less livable. And Mm -hmm. um, luckily, the reason that these things are having a negative impact on the environment is like not necessarily the case. It's possible to have comfortable homes in ways that doesn't do this to the environment. And coolant are a big part of this. Mm -hmm. We use coolants today or specifically refrigerants, uh, HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, as uh, the gas inside of these systems that drives them and the HFCs that we use today have very high global warming potentials, which means when they leak into the atmosphere, they are much, much more potent than CO2 at contributing to global warming. How much more potent? Common Refrigerant today's R410A. It has a GWP of 2,088, so 2,000 times more potent than
0: CO2. Big problem. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But before HFCs, what was being used as the coolant in um, air conditioner units?
1: Yeah. So if you want, basically the reason you need a coolant in an air conditioner is it's a fluid that boils at a low temperature. When things boil, it absorbs heat from its surroundings, which is why, you know, when you're slightly wet or when you're sweating, it it helps cool you off. And a uh, HVAC system or an air conditioner basically causes this fluid to boil and absorb heat from its surroundings. It then compresses that gas so that it gets to high temperature and high pressure where it has a higher boiling point. It then condenses it, which gives off heat to its surroundings. It does this process outside of the building so you can dump the heat to the outdoors. And then it drops the pressure back to a lower pressure where it can repeat the cycle. And so you need a fluid with specific thermodynamic properties Mm -hmm. that will let it boil and condense at the right temperatures and pressures. In the early days of air conditioning, we used ammonia and hydrocarbons to do this hmm And what's the problem with that? Ammonia's is a little bit poisonous to humans, which is bad. Uh, right. Often these... <laughs> uh, it would happen often that you were sitting in a movie theater in the 1920s, and if one of these systems leaked, the movie theater would uh, then smell very bad, causing everyone to run out of the theater.
0: Not good for business. Not good for business. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and then the problem with CFCs, its replacement was what?
1: So... We used these uh, gases for a while. There was a big push in the industry to find something that was better, that was not flammable, was not poisonous to humans. And DuPont comes up with a new type of compound that will do this. It's commonly called Freon. It was specifically a class of chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons. They showed up for the first time in, I believe, the 1950s as mm-hmm. a odorless, non-toxic, non-flammable fluid that we could replace ammonia and hydrocarbons with in our air conditioners.
0: Yeah. And we think, wow, this is awesome. It doesn't smell. <laughs> right? it's just no, there's no issues yeah. with, the, with this chemical Freon, but there's this invisible problem with Freon. Exactly. correct.
1: Yeah. And so um, unfortunately, everything was not as it seemed. And we later learned that this gas, when it leaks into the atmosphere, contributes to the degradation of the ozone layer, which happens to be kind of important.
0: Yeah, <laughs> kind of important. We won't go into why those layers are important, but a- that actually led to one of the its most successful environmental policies which we have to date. Yeah, that's the the Montreal. Was that the Montreal Protocol? Exactly. Okay. Good.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of both really inspiring takeaways from this story and yeah. discouraging. And I think the inspiring one is that like we came together, proposed legislation, phased out this chemical and successfully reduce the level of CFCs in the atmosphere so that the hole in the ozone layer didn't get bigger. And I believe it's actually hopefully getting smaller. I think so. Yeah. From my basic yeah. reading... I did read something that they had detected a huge CFC leak recently, but I oh, great. can't follow up on yeah. where that came from. Anyway,
0: good Morgan News. <laughs> 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 so, so, so we replace CFCs with HFCs. We don't realize that HFCs are also very bad. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> this is the discouraging part. When we phase out HFC, sorry, when we phase out CFCs in the Montreal Protocol in the 80s, I believe. Yeah. We had the opportunity to switch to a new industry standard for refrigerant that mm-hmm. was better for the environment. We made a choice to switch to HFCs and the the company that owned a patent on CFCs, which was not making as much money in the, in the 80s when the Montreal Protocol was passed, also happened to have a patent on HFCs. Mm-hmm. And so we're pushing the Montreal Protocol as an environmental piece of legislation, but also secretly had a financial interest in the replacement that we ended up choosing, which was HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons.
0: Shocker. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And so now with our understanding of HFCs and a lot of uh, push going on in terms of improving the climate to rescue ourselves Mm -hmm. from human-caused climate change, what, what are some potential replacements for HFCs?
1: Yeah, I I think the lesson from the Montreal Protocol in the 80s is that it's really good that we can pass legislation to phase out a substance, but we should make sure that the follow-up to that, that the transition to a different substance doesn't have any other externalities. Mm -hmm. And in 2016, we passed the Kigali Amendments to the Montreal Protocol. By we, I mean a coalition of countries, which did not include the U.S. because Mm -hmm. our government was not very favorable to Uh, environmental regulations in 2016. I believe we have since joined that agreement. But the point is that now that we have decided to phase out HFCs, the industry is looking at what the next refrigerant will be that we'll transition to. And we hope that it is one that doesn't have some other negative effects in the environment. And broadly, the two classes of refrigerants that the industry is looking at are natural refrigerants and HFOs.
0: Okay. And um, I can assume that we'll get to your product later, but I can assume that your product it will is being built to potentially accommodate the replacement of hfcs
1: yeah i might have a i might have a little bit of a bias here yeah. but uh, i would really like us to uh move to air conditioning and heating that both lets us have comfortable buildings and hopefully avoids another environmental disaster like global warming and the whole in ozone layer literally probably the two biggest planet-scale environmental disasters, Mm -hmm. both directly or indirectly related to air conditioning.
0: (laughs) And say, uh, so what what are those potential replacements that we consider natural? So natural refrigerants is
1: kind of a broad category to mean a refrigerant that we're not manufacturing in a factory. It's not a chemical that we're designing in a factory. It's Mm -hmm. something that we just find naturally and so includes ammonia, the poisonous one that we stopped using. Mm -hmm. It includes CO2, which can actually be used as a refrigerant, Mm -hmm. although... It's not at the most ideal sets of pressures. And so it's today a little bit limited in application. And then the last category are hydrocarbons. There's a lot of hydrocarbons, which have thermodynamic properties that align really well with mm-hmm. pretty much the way we've designed all of our HVAC systems to run. Obviously the downside of hydrocarbons is they're flammable.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's an issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, you don't want your house or your apartment building to
1: burn down. Yeah. Okay. And the interesting thing is that HFCs and HFOs are also varying degrees of flammable, not Mm. all as flammable as hydrocarbons. Also, when they burn, they often give off terrible gases because they are made of chlorine and fluorine atoms. And so managing the flammability is a major concern with them, but it is a concern that we can manage from an engineering standpoint so Mm. that we don't have to worry about it from an environmental standpoint. Mm. And I think a great example of that is is, um, hydrocarbons Mm. are often used as a refrigerant in Refrigeration. A lot of mini fridges and wine coolers, because they're small in size, use butane as a refrigerant. Mm, Okay.
0: In addition to the refrigerants being a challenge, which we need to solve, there's also the energy consumption part of the equation, which is required for air conditioners. Can we go like just a little bit into that part of the problem? Sure. If you
1: break down the harmful environmental effects of heating and cooling buildings... Mm -hmm. It's broadly in three buckets, refrigerants, which we just talked about. And then the next two are a little bit more intuitive. They're like directly related to the energy that we use to drive them. So in heating, that means we burn fossil fuels in most cases to heat our homes, natural gas most commonly. And then in the cooling side, the electricity that we use to cool our homes. And so a combination of efficiency to make sure we use less energy and making sure that that energy comes from low carbon sources, which there's no such thing as low carbon natural gas, at least not yet until someone figures out how to mass produce bio natural gas and on the electricity side, switching to wind and solar. Mm-hmm. And so from our standpoint, what we're trying to do is switch to devices that use only electricity and not natural gas that are smart and wifi connected so that they can hopefully participate in interacting with the grid's use of renewables. And then also if as efficient as possible so that they use less energy.
0: Do we have any idea of how much Cooling buildings contributes to energy consumption in the United States.
1: I think that building heating and cooling is forty percent. Wow, I think it's forty percent. Okay, do you know? I don't know, <laughs>
0: but I I, I I know it's a substantial portion. Yeah, I would say AX is probably greater than probably greater than twenty.
1: I think it's smaller. I think forty percent is buildings. Use forty percent of our energy, and I think well, that heating and cooling is half of that, which would we'll put
0: it at twenty yeah. percent. I should probably know. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's it's a lot, yeah. And what's happening in terms of demand or projected demand for heating and cooling, and the energy demand that's going to go along with that? Like not just the United States, but globally. What yeah. what is that? looking like.
1: Yeah. As most things, there's good news and bad news here. The And, and that is that uh, use of AC. I mean, we've had AC for a while here in the US since about the 60s or 70s when it first showed up. We've pretty much hit saturation of use in, of AC in the US. Most places that need it have it. Around the globe, that's not true. We're kind of at the beginning of the growth curve of AC. Mm-hmm. And it's expected that AC use around the globe is going to roughly triple by 2050, mm-hmm. yeah. which means 4 billion more ACs on the planet, which is Roughly equivalent to one AC for every two of us on the planet. That's Mm -hmm. a lot of air
0: conditioners. Okay. I found a few stats. Cooling systems currently account for 10% of global electricity usage. And over the next three decades, air conditioning will generate more than 132 gigatons of carbon emissions. Yeah. So globally, 10%. And we're just at the earlier stages of this J-curve. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just cooling.
1: Cooling. Right. Not heating. Right. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty important. I mean, we both need these systems to be healthy and productive. We need them actually as a tool to protect vulnerable communities against the worst effects of climate change, right? If, if we have increased heat waves, one of the best things we can do to protect communities is, is have air conditioning so that they can be comfortable. Yet, ironically, it's, it's kind of making the problem worse as systems are designed today.
0: And I also want to note that that figure from the IEA, which you just quoted, the increase of 4 billion AC units, those are AC window units. Is that so? I,
1: I, yeah. I'm almost positive that the majority of those are expected to be room ACs, like mm-hmm. AC window AC size, but um, mm-hmm. I didn't know that they were all, yeah.
0: Yeah. So that just gives you an idea of the scope of the problem. And before we switch to like your your background and ingredient, what about the? I'm sure what's on people's minds is what about the impact of climate change on demand of let's say residential AC units. I mean, it could be residential, could be commercial, commercial mm-hmm. as well. But are you thinking about like the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, in the United States, getting a lot warmer. Exactly. Right. Is that is that going to uh, also increase demand?
1: yeah, it will. People talk about three major trends. I believe this is in the IEA report on the future of cooling. There's three major drivers that are contributing to increased need for air conditioning. One of them is just growing middle class, just people gaining the economic ability to buy their first air conditioner. And that's kind of the largest of the three. And the second two are warming climates, which means we need a lot of air conditioning in places that we didn't previously. And the Pacific Northwest is a good and timely example of that. And then uh, lastly, increased urbanization Mm -hmm. where people are moving to cities and and cities tend to need uh, more air conditioning than you would in a a rural setting.
0: Okay. And so now that people have a idea of the history of cooling and heating and the importance of it today and going forward I want to top up your drink great before we get into your background and gradient um, as well Cheers Cheers a uh, second drink going into <laughs> going into your background so where are you from yeah longest intro ever I'm a <laughs> I'm a thermodynamics
1: nerd from outskirts of Cleveland Ohio.
0: Outskirts of Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. And so you're not quite Dorothy from
1: Kansas. <laughs> not quite, no. <laughs> uh,
0: what about your family? Do they have any influence on you becoming a, you call yourself, is it a, a thermo nerd? Yeah. Is that the yeah. proper nomenclature? <laughs>
1: um, yeah. So both my parents were engineers. So like I definitely got into engineering because of them. My mom's actually visiting me this Friday. So uh, oh. mom, if you're listening, your trip is now over. I don't know what we're doing this weekend yet, but I'm sorry for however the trip went. Um, Yeah, both my parents are engineers, uh, so kind of grew up in a a family of engineers. And and specifically, my mom's brother, my uncle, was Mm -hmm. probably, of all of the techies in the family, the most thermodynamics nerdy. He loved rockets, and we built Mm -hmm. a ton of model rockets as a kid. And my dad um, and a lot of members of my family like riding motorcycles and four-wheelers. So we were working on a lot of engines as
0: kids as well. So you were definitely a tinkerer yeah, growing up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, what about heating and cooling? Were you were you into playing around with with those units? I think aside from playing with fire and rockets, uh-huh. Let's see. I did drop a
1: window <laughs> AC out the window once. Uh-huh. It was just a first story window, so not terrible, but most of them aren't designed to to survive even a 4-foot fall. But yeah, I don't know. I think I just grew up growing up uh, in an engineering family, always Kind of liked building things and designing things and uh, kind of wanted to work on something that I thought was important for the world.
0: Where'd you go to school?
1: Let's see. So after growing up in Northern Ohio, I decided I was going to go to engineering school. and I went to a school in the South of Ohio called University of Dayton. I've heard of it and they have a
0: pretty good basketball team.
1: They do. Yeah, they do. Great yeah. school, really good engineering program, mm-hmm. great basketball team, as you said. It was a good place. It's also the home of a lot of uh, important in- innovations in engineering. The Wright brothers designed and built their plane in Dayton, Ohio, flew it in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, which is why our license plates in Ohio and North Carolina flight, fight over who who invented flight. And also, I just learned this recently since uh-huh. we last recorded this episode, <laughs> Um, The engineer who first developed Freon, CFCs, Uh uh, was working with a man called Something Something Kettering, who was based in Dayton, Ohio. So he was working in Dayton, Ohio, trying to figure out better refrigerants for cooling. So Dayton actually has a piece of history in cooling as well.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And you're like coming full circle. Yeah. To make it clean.
1: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. This The person who invented Freon, also the person who invented leaded gasoline. So track record of making really amazing chemicals that can Mm -hmm. help devices work better. Not a strong environmental track record.
0: Well, in all fairness, they probably didn't know about climate change at that point in time. (laughs) That's true. So we we can forgive them for not having that knowledge. Exactly. And so um, how did you go from uh, the Midwest to the West Coast? Yeah, so I,
1: I finished my degree in Dayton. I did a lot of work in Ohio. It's funny, my undergrad thesis was on building heating and cooling, actually. Uh, but a lot of my internships in undergrad were working for GE Aviation on Aircraft Engines. And so still like both in the thermal realm, one of them on the power generation side and one of them on the building comfort side. At the end of undergrad, I kind of realized I wasn't quite ready to get a job yet. And I thought I would go yeah. to grad school. Yeah. And uh, that's what brought me out here.
0: And were you passionate about or focused on climate through or during your studies? Or is that something you got into later? I was, yeah. So my advisor
1: in undergrad was definitely big on climate change. He was probably the first Prius owner that I knew his name is Kevin Hallinan. Kevin, if you're listening, thanks for being a great mentor. <laughs> and I got really excited about a lot of the opportunities working on some climate technologies that were upcoming. And so That's what led me to go to grad school. I thought I could have a bigger impact if I continued to do
0: research rather than
1: joined a company after undergrad.
0: And so why did you choose to focus on heating and cooling?
1: I think that the thing that got me excited about building heating and cooling Mm -hmm. is, first of all, like I I realized it's a super important public health need. Building air quality really like, as I mentioned before, correlates to productivity and and Mm -hmm. strong public health outcomes. It has a huge carbon footprint today and Mm -hmm. it really doesn't need to. There's ways to decarbonize. We know how to decarbonize and I didn't see anyone doing it. And so I I think just like the lack of progress in the sector and the important public health outcomes that could come out of it really got me excited about trying to work on this problem.
0: And so out of graduate school, where did you go and work before starting Gradient?
1: And so I got a job at a, a Spanish company called Abengoa doing solar thermal power plants, which at the time in 2013 was a really exciting area of developing clean tech. Cool. And then after that, where'd you go? So I worked for them for a couple of years. Turned out I didn't really like the life of living for a giant corporate entity and yeah. kind of wanted to get back to the California vibe. And so ended up getting a job at a small R&D lab in California or in uh-huh. San Francisco called Other Lab.
0: So you didn't like living in Spain? I loved living in Spain.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did not like uh working for my employer, but really loved living in Spain.
0: Yeah. I think that they have uh they have pretty good food where you lived. I great imagine. food.
1: Also, incredibly hot weather. So had a very uh strong relationship with air conditioning in the south of Spain.
0: All right. So you went to Other Lab. Let's talk about your experience there. Like what is Other Lab? What did you start doing at Other Lab? Who'd you work with there? Yeah. Other lab is surprisingly hard to
1: describe. it is a private r d lab. It's kind of like a Bell Labs, but way smaller and more like California. Mm-hmm. they most of their projects come from some form of government grant. They' ideas that are developed internally. they apply for grant funding and hopefully that grant funding turns into a scalable business idea and then spins out of other lab. I got hired to work on another solar thermal project that project was called Sunfolding. Layla Madrone hired me to work on a thermal receiver that we had hoped would be part of Sunfolding's Mm -hmm. tech roadmap. Turned out not to be true. Sunfolding only does PV these days. But in the early days where Sunfolding was still growing out of other lab, there's a lot of research happening to see if that tech could be used in solar thermal plants.
0: Oh, really? Okay. Layla Madrone, a total badass, Mm -hmm. one of my favorite founders. Yeah. And she's going to be on this show. Oh, great. (laughs) She said she's really busy (laughs) <laughs> she has a lot going on, which which I which I know she does. But uh, she said once she's a little less busy, she's going to be on the show. And my recollection is the last conference-ish thing that I went to was with you and her in D.C. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Which was really cool. And I think that still stands to this day. Yeah. Yeah. That might change soon, though. It seems like conferences are popping, popping they back are. up. Yeah. I remember that. It was
1: February of 2019. That's right. Yep. And uh, yeah, you, me, and Layla were having a cocktail in some bar with a bunch of people wearing suits because it's the sea and that's San Francisco. That <laughs> that's that's basically conference. all they do, right?
0: Yeah. They, wear, they <laughs> Yeah, they wear, they wear suits and dresses and go drink yeah. at five o'clock and make deals, yeah. right? Yeah, we were doing that with the Department of Energy and RBE. And uh, I really loved having you all out there. I thought that was a really great trip. And it's just so interesting and fitting that that was the last thing yeah. that a lot of people went to, yeah, including Matthew Norton
1: from Prime Impact Fund. I forget that I've been talking climate tech and drinking cocktails with you for a long time.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, it has been quite some time. Yeah, we met. Do we meet through drinking? I don't know. I believe it was a cocktail with Matthew Norton at ARPA-E. I think it was. I think it was. Yeah. Which, you know, some things don't change. Right. Except (laughs) except like, you know, there is no RPE conference right now. But I figure that there will be another time when you, Matthew and I are, are sharing a cocktail as well in the not so distant future. Knock on wood. He actually said we should get together next time he comes out here for a board meeting, which I assume is probably your board meeting. So hopefully, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So you're at other lab, you worked with sunfolding. And then how did you transition from sunfolding to just reference, company was called Tro, once yes. through rebranding now gradient, but what um, what had you transition from Sunfolding to starting to work on and founding Tro?
1: Yeah, so I was out of the lab. Layla hired me. At C- Agree. She's a complete badass, like amazing mentor and like first boss back here in California. Learned a ton from her. And other lab at the time was working on a lot of things solar, also a lot of things robotics, energy, and manufacturing, mm-hmm. um, and started this data focused project, which is informally called Super Sankey, is on the internet today at energyliteracy.com. And it's basically <laughs> the nerdiest map of all all energy use in the u.s that anyone has ever developed or seen
0: which i I think i actually have seen the map it was plastered on a on a wall exactly it was on our wall for most of uh
1: (laughs) when we were in the original other lab building it was always up on our wall and i think it really encapsulates a lot of how other lab thinks about things which is like first build the data and like understand the way things work Mm -hmm. before you develop a hypothesis and as they were building that data, I wasn't directly involved in that project, but I was involved in a lot of the like thermodynamics research mm. happening at other labs around energy and environment. And one of the things that we realized from that data was really how big of an issue building heating and cooling was. Mm. And that was like in stark contrast to, at the time, how little work we saw happening in the sector.
0: Mm. Great. So you said there's a large problem that is very much... Well, it's being addressed in some ways, but it's still right for, as they say, disruption Yeah, here in Silicon Valley. So right for disruption, and, and you decided to go work on that. Exactly. It wasn't moving at nearly the speed that we thought it needed mm-hmm. to to mm-hmm.
1: avoid any level of catastrophic climate change. And so myself, other lab researcher in the fluid mechanics space, Adrian Saul and a couple other people came up with this idea that we were going to work on this specifically. We came with the name TRO. It stood for Thermodynamics rules everything around us.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, Obviously, the name that a bunch of nerds would come up with. And we applied for a lot of grants. It's funny because I used to say like, oh, we applied for like eight or nine or 10 grants before we finally won one. And then one time I looked up our old file tree of all the grants we applied to. It was more. It was definitely more than 10. It might have been like
0: 15 grants. 15 grants, yeah.
1: So like we really kept at it. And eventually we got our first source of external funding that kind of kicked off our company from a then small and now quite larger group called at the time Psychotron Road, today uh,
0: Activate. Huge fan of theirs and yeah. Elon Gurr and Matthew Price and, and all those folks over there and, yeah. and what they have built and are building. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so you, you got some, uh, some funding and resources from Psychotron Row, now Activate. Mm-hmm. And then Saul puts you in, uh, Saul Griffith, for those who don't know who we're referring to when we say Saul. Saul Griffith puts you in a very well air conditioned or heated and cooled room in the, in, in, in other lab. Right. And was like, get to work. The The exact opposite.
1: He put me in an incredibly uncomfortable room in other lab. Other lab is in a historic building built in the 1920s. It used to be a pipe organ factory and it was, it's absolutely not designed for thermal comfort. We were on the top floor and the roof was like from a, heat transfer radiation perspective, black. And so in San Francisco, literally the most benign, like habitable climate in the U.S. (laughs) It was always hot up there. And I don't know if Saul did that on purpose. Yeah, I was was going to ask if if he did
0: that on purpose.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you know, at the time, like I said, not a lot of people were talking about buildings. Startups and hardware were not a common Or easy thing to do at all? Still, still aren't. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, things have changed so easy now. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. and you know, other other lab like really working on like first principles energy innovations, and then Psychotron Road now activate really one of the first organizations trying to bring hard Mm. tech to market and accelerate the path of hard tech to market. Both really helped us kick off Tro, Mm.
0: which is now Gradient. How much time is this from when you? You know, decided to start tinkering and form a company in the space. To when you received your first institutional round of funding. Yeah,
1: let's see. We first met when I was at RPE for a solar project. It was probably around then that I first started thinking about the challenges here, and it, Mm -hmm. it probably took us like a year. Of building prototypes, writing grants, running analytical models, and just poking at the thermodynamics and the science to figure out where we could find a way in. And then we found our first source of external support via Activate. And then it took us another year of like, okay, okay, we think we understand the physics and what our solution is of like understanding the industry and the customer and what Mm -hmm. the problem that we wanted to solve first is.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's just something important to sit back and process just for a second because Activate, at the time, Cyclotron Road, that's not a fund. It was, I don't know if it still receives the funding for Department of Energy, but it was primarily funded by Department of Energy. I I think they had some other, probably some Mm -hmm. other grant funding to go along with it. I know they've now raised uh, other forms of funding due to their success, but you're you're talking about government grants and support from what's called Activate now. and, And a lot of that is actually government. Exactly. Support. Yeah. I, I, I just think it's important to kind of like sit back and, and realize that, you know, maybe for like the first two years. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's fantastic that, that you all were really um, supported by government funding, which is important because it's non-dilutive.
1: Yeah, exactly. First of all, I think that there's a role for all of these sources of funding: private capital, government funding, philanthropy, whatever else it is, in mm-hmm. working on this problem. Right? These problems are multifaceted. Our solutions have to be multifaceted. I think that, like when we met in D.C., it was yeah. it was like around how we how can we bring manufacturing to the U.S. and how can the government help with that, which like I thought the fact that you brought together that group was a a really like interesting way to build a coalition in a politically difficult time for climate. Right. And so, yeah, I think that government was government funding was really important for us to get started. And I think that as we think about other solutions to climate problems, Mm -hmm. it's really important to have multifaceted approaches to funding.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I want to double down on that problem that needs to be solved of, hey, uh, we need to produce products like Tro is producing, like Sunfolding is producing in the United States mm-hmm. um, and and really addressing those problems. And I think that actually... Uh, even the Trump administration, you know, kind of grabbed hold of that, and I think the the Biden administration is really running with it, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're like, this is something that's really, really important for us to focus on and to ensure that we can do. Uh, but you know, not to get too far off track, you know, like get back on. So you then go and and raise your first round of institutional funding. I'm trying to think about when that is like. So, when I saw your prototype, I went by Other Lab. You show me the prototype. Uh, was that when you had, I'm trying to recall, I think you had, I don't know if you had received institutional funding then uh, at that point. Let's see. Our first private capital outside of Other Lab, Other Lab
1: is like a mixed bag of funding. Most of it's government, but some of it's private. So, like yeah. our incubation, Other Lab, it was partially due to private capital. But anyway. We won. We we got into the Activate program uh, that really kicked off the time for us to focus. And then our first source of private funding was in 2018. Mm-hmm. That round was kicked off by Insight Ventures. Matt Rogers, one of the co-founders of Nest, is one of the founders of Insight, and like he was one of the first people who, like, having had so much experience with really terrible products and terrible user experiences in HVAC, was like, "Yes, this yeah. could be better." Yeah, and that kind of gets to. I haven't even said what we're doing better, but like I mentioned, we wanted to work on climate. We knew HVAC and buildings was a big part Mm -hmm. of it. And we talked to a lot of customers in our first year as a company after getting Activate Funding. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we were like, wow, customers don't care. (laughs) (laughs) They don't care about what? (laughs) They don't care about, sorry, they care about their carbon footprint. A lot of customers want to be more environmentally friendly. But at least with the existing products on the market yeah. at that time, they yeah. were not empowered to do anything about it. And they were still buying the least efficient, worst products. Right. I mean, look, they want to be comfortable first and foremost. Yeah. I mean, in the end, a lot of these buying decisions are either happening when the house is being constructed by whoever's designing the building or they're happening when it's the hottest day of the year. And you're like, I have to get something in here or mm-hmm. I like, can't sleep or my kid can't sleep or I can't work. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm just going to buy this. Mm-hmm. I need to solve this problem now. Mm-hmm.
0: So we kind of fast forward a little bit because I want to get to what you guys are doing and will do. <laughs> <laughs> so now you have your, is it safe to say it's commercially ready? Is it, is it almost commercially ready or is it, or is it ready now?
1: Uh, almost commercially ready is fair. We definitely have systems that are ready. Yeah. But having a system that works and is ready is um mm-hmm is one step, and then the next step is scaling up manufacturing and getting ready
0: to sell and ship. So let's describe what this product is.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So we want to enable people to have comfortable homes and buildings because we know how important HVAC is. We want to make sure that that's possible without compromising the environment. And when we realized that we have to figure out what customers care about most, we decided for a specific entry place into the market, which is that people who have window ACs hate it. Mm -hmm. They hate their window ACs and they want their window back. Why do they hate their window ACs? Mostly because they take up their window, they're noisy, and they're ugly. Mm -hmm. This is usually top three pain points Mm -hmm. with systems today. Mm -hmm.
0: And where do we find most of these window units, at least in the United States? In general, like I mentioned
1: earlier, we talked about air conditioning was first invented in 1903. It didn't really get widespread adoption in houses until the 50s or 60s. And so about 1970s, any buildings that were built had ducted air for HVAC systems. Mm -hmm. And before that, generally not. And so if you look at places that are in warmer climates and that have pre-1970s buildings, there's a lot of window
0: ACs. And what comes to mind to me is New York City. Exactly. New
1: York City is like the epicenter by a factor of probably like two or three.
0: Most people who have visited New York City know about window ACs because we're be walking down the street and something wet lands yeah. on them. And, they, and their first thought might be, oh my gosh, did a bird just crap on me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they like kind of, at least that's me. I check myself and I'm like, no, the time. Yeah. that's not the case. <laughs> I look up and, oh, it's it's the window ACs that are dripping on me. Although the last time I went to New York, which is uh, actually for a happy hour, that Clement Tech Cocktails happy hour, which we put on, I was walking down the street in a burr did crap on me
1: oh so, it wasn't a window this is the one time you wished you were drift on by a window AC <laughs>
0: right I was like I was like there's I'm definitely not near a building right now and I'm um, just walked under a tree and uh and yeah a a pigeon definitely just crapped on me yeah. so <laughs> that was the first time that uh that a bird has crapped on me in New York City which I feel like maybe is just a a rite of passage yeah yeah
1: <laughs> that's a good way to think about it <laughs> so what does your product look like basically we're looking at solving the problem of window acs and so it gives you your window back it looks like saddlebags over your window sill. take all of the things in a window ac mm-hmm. and put them below the window sill, so that you can still open and close your window and see through mm-hmm. also i mean you can look at the system and decide for yourself but i think it looks nicer than most window acs
0: okay and is it quiet Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm selling for you here, man. <laughs> <Exactly.
1: Yeah. laughs> uh, like I mentioned earlier, that's the other issue people have with window ACs is they're loud. And the reason they're loud mm. is the noisiest component in an AC is the compressor and the condenser fan. If you have any professionally installed system, one of the things that professional systems are designed to do is have these noisy components outside. Mm. And window ACs can't because they're all in one box. And so it's really hard to isolate noise. And so our system does the same thing. We have the compressor and condenser fan in the outside part of the saddlebags so that we can make the inside of the room as quiet as possible.
0: And how does a consumer or a user install it? Yeah,
1: great question. So one of the issues with AC today is it's actually super hard to upgrade. If you have a window AC today and you Mm -hmm. want to get to something better, it's not easy in a lot of cases, it's because you're renting and your landlord won't let, won't let you modify the building. In a lot of cases, it's because professional systems are just super expensive.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, in a lot of cases, it's because professional systems require you to literally modify the building. You have to either install ducts in a building that doesn't have it, which is very expensive, or drill holes through the wall to put a professional system in. And so what we've done is designed like an end-to-end user experience where like, the buying process is easy. The install process is super easy and does zero building modification. And the end-of-life process is also easy. It's easy to uninstall and it doesn't require you to have any holes in the windows. If you are a renter and you leave the apartment, you can leave it just as you um,
0: came into it. And I assume that if somebody is technologically incompetent, they (laughs) they can call over a handy person. Uh, or a task grab if they're well if they're if they're technologically savvy enough to order a task grab then they are probably uh, savvy enough to install it themselves. Good but point. but but at least they can call up if they have, if they use a phone to call yeah. up a, a handy person to come over and install it for yeah. them. The
1: most complicated part of it is just that it's heavy. Systems like this yeah. require heavy compressors and heat yeah. exchangers other than that it's pretty straightforward yeah. installing any piece of furniture or equipment always takes a little bit of uh, a little bit of work but we've mm-hmm. tried to simplify it as much as possible because when we built the company we thought if we want to deploy low carbon tech we have to make it as easy as possible to mm-hmm. access into the buildings and so we've really focused on making this install process easy mm-hmm. you can task grab it but if you're comfortable picking up a heavy appliance you can install it yourself, no problem.
0: Is it going to be a challenge for you and your company to transition from, I want to say you're transitioning from, because I'm sure that you will continue doing R&D and mm-hmm. innovating, but really transitioning from a pure hardware-focused company to a consumer-facing company? Yeah.
1: This is a great opportunity for me to talk about our rebrand to Gradient. Yeah, <laughs> Tro was a very nerdy name. Yeah. I think that everyone at our company is excited about the impact we can have. Mm-hmm. We're excited about how important these systems are for public health and how important uh, mitigation of global warming is. And this requires us to be thinking about our customers, just like in any sector. It's just yeah. that our customers aren't technical. Our customers are are. Mm-hmm you know, a lot of like common people from all parts of of everything. And so we don't shy away from talking about our technology or the impact we can have, but we do recognize that the best way to have an impact is to focus on customer experience, make acquisition and installation like as smooth as possible. And not just think about building a device that hits an air temperature, but think about what we're trying to optimize for in user's comfort Mm -hmm. and what that comfort journey looks like today from buying all the way to end of life.
0: Mm -hmm. And now customers are very demanding Mm -hmm. and impatient. So if they have any issue with installation or uh, maintenance, they're going to expect a very swift and correct diagnosis of their their issue. Exactly. Which I want to flip that
1: and say, this is true from... In every product category, right. why has HVAC remained so
0: terrible? I'm going to ask the same That's question a good that point.
1: every founder gets yeah. asked over and over.
0: Why hasn't anyone done this? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is an opportunity. Yeah. Because we are fortunate enough to live in a very moderate climate. Yeah. So we just need a little heat, not much of anything else. I don't have cooling in this building. It's been a while since I've actually interacted regularly with a, with an AC unit but I do remember when I did it was like there's no person to text or message or call it's it's definitely not a consumer friendly yeah. appliance yeah if you will exactly and it needs to be because a lot of the
1: new air conditioners that are being installed you mentioned the IEA report mostly, The growth that they're projecting in AC is mostly with room air conditioners like window ACs. And the experience is so terrible today. Mm. If we want to make sure that we have low carbon tech ahead of the next four billion air conditioners that the planet is about Mm -hmm. to get, Mm -hmm. we really need to focus on all parts of the consumer journey and not just the hardware
0: itself. Yeah. And so that being said, I imagine. So right now, is it safe to say that you're in process of raising A series a round of financing is that we are yeah i'm allowed to say okay great (laughs) so 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 you're in process and maybe by the time this you know hopefully for you right (laughs) for your sanity (laughs) uh the the time that we release this podcast episode maybe you will be close to or have a line of sight to closing but i assume this this funding is really kind of to take the product to market in a target city or two but If you're thinking about the long-term, we're talking about Series C Mm -hmm. round of fundraising and beyond, you're probably thinking about global markets as well. Exactly. I mean, we started this
1: company because we saw the growth in AC was happening and that it was going to drive us off a cliff in terms of carbon emissions. And a lot of that problem is based around countries around the world gaining access to air conditioning. A lot of the growth in AC is happening in countries outside of the U.S., Mm -hmm. Right now, we're focused on the U.S. because we have to start somewhere. We want to prove that the customer experience can be better. Mm -hmm. We want to prove that you can have comfort without the associated carbon emissions. And we want to do that in our backyard first before we expand international markets.
0: And so... You all are already taking pre-orders for a wait list. No a wait list. Yeah. A wait list for the first gradient product. Exactly. What does the product launch look like to you? Yeah. What What does success look like for the product launch?
1: Yeah. Let me start with with kind of like what what we saw over the past year. We, a year ago, when 2020... What year is it? 2021?
0: It's uh, it's still 2021. <laughs> Unfortunately, to be honest, I'm kind of like ready you for this year to be over, man. This year's kind of sucked <laughs> for me, so I want I, I want to get to 2022 already. I, I hear you. But yes, it, it is still 2021. But We're getting close. Yeah, we're getting close to 2022. Getting that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Um So at the beginning of the year, we were still called Tro. We were still in stealth mode. This year, a couple of things happened. We came out of stealth mode with a new name. We shared off the product for the first time. Uh, We opened our wait list and uh, had an amazing response. A ton of people were excited. A ton of press picked us up. And I think the other thing that is exciting about the last year is that we spent a ton of time thinking about how we would talk about the fact that our system does heating. Mm -hmm. It's not just an air conditioner. It's a heat pump, Mm -hmm. which means that it can not just cool, but heat Heat pumps turn out to be a really critical tool for us decarbonizing that no one really knew about several years ago and is now mm-hmm. really growing in the public consciousness. And so just in the past year, we've seen a ton of people get excited about heat pumps mm. and about the fact that our product is a heat pump. And so that's why we think Interesting. now is the, the right time to scale manufacturing.
0: Interesting. To verge a little bit off topic here, that could be important because if you're thinking about places... Or locations that were not traditionally experiencing heat waves. Let's think of Wisconsin. Yeah, right. Like, like you're talking about. Uh, I I can imagine if I googled it, maybe Wisconsin has actually experienced some heat waves. Yeah, recently. Uh, maybe I'm off base here, but I wouldn't be surprised. And and so, um, you know, of course, somebody in, in Wisconsin will go, "Oh well, do I really have to buy this product?" Because A heat wave might happen once a year. I'll just tough it out. But you say, aha, it's actually also a heat pump. Yeah. They go, now you're talking. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So,
1: if I mean, even just the Bay Area and the Pacific Northwest didn't traditionally need air conditioning and are now starting to need it and do have heating loads. Yeah. And then if you look at the next 4 billion ACs that we're expecting to show up on the planet in the next 30 years... This would be a huge climate problem, but mm-hmm. here's what we can do mm-hmm. to turn this into a climate opportunity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if these next 4 brand ACs are all heat pumps, they can also decarbonize yeah. heating yeah. while we're expanding access to AC. Mm-hmm. If they have low-carbon refrigerants, we can solve the refrigerant problem. And lastly, if we make sure they're all smart and Wi-Fi connected, we can help modernize the grid at the same time and have more solar and wind on mm-hmm. the grid because this is one of the biggest uses of electricity in homes that's currently not deployable or connected to any demand response.
0: So in a nutshell, I think what you're getting at, which is a huge opportunity, is that with the extremities of temperature, Mm -hmm. which we are experiencing and will continue to experience, the hots get hotter, the colds Mm -hmm. get colder, that your product is really becoming a one-size-fits-all, if you will, right? This is a climate moderation machine, right? We worked through an amazingly long list of different words for climate right. moderation machine, air conditioner,
1: or space. CMM, color. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, that's basically the gist of it is that if we go back to we started this conversation with the Industrial Revolution, because that's what kicked off the discovery of heat pumps in the first place. In the Industrial Revolution, everyone talked about Jevons paradox. I don't know if it was everyone actually, but there's this economist named Jevons who said, if we make... Steam engines more efficient will just use more coal, not less, mm-hmm. because the services they provide will become cheaper. But the interesting thing about building heating and cooling and CO2 emissions is mm-hmm. that it's not CO2 emissions under a resource that we use to make our buildings comfortable. It's possible to decouple these things. You can buy an air conditioner and you can make your home more comfortable and also help the planet and not hurt it because the sources of CO2 that are tied to our building energy use can be decoupled if we use heat pumps, if we use better refrigerants. And if we make sure to have a modern grid that uses uh, low-carbon
0: electricity. Oh, my gosh. And we didn't touch upon the most important part of the gradient product. What is the average reduction in electricity consumption that, <laughs> that results from using a gradient? Are we calling it a heat pump? Uh, a gradient product or climate moderation machine <laughs> versus a um, a standard window AC unit.
1: Yeah, we start with carbon footprint. So carbon oh. footprint is what's most important to us as a company. And like I mentioned, the carbon footprint comes, reduction comes in three areas. One, you're electrifying heating and so switching from fossil fuels to electricity, which even in the most carbon intensive electric grid in the U.S. today is better. Mm-hmm. It's better to use electricity in a heat pump mm-hmm. as opposed to in a resistance heater. Second is using better refrigerants. Our refrigerant that we use today has a 70% lower global warming potential Working on getting to 100%, and that's a longer conversation about natural refrigerants. And then lastly is is efficiency and using less energy. Mm -hmm. Um, Using less efficiency in cooling, you can get a big benefit from where window ACs are today. And then on the heating side, if you use an electric resistance heater, you use basically the same amount of electricity as you get in heat. Whereas if you use an electric heat pump, you can use a third of the electricity Mm -hmm. as you need in heat. So, it's kind of like being 300% efficient, which sounds made up, but there's a giant savings potential in switching from heating systems today to heat pumps.
0: In other words, if you're tired, here we go. I'm do the sales pitch here. <laughs> if you're tired of, of seeing that ugly uh, climate moderation machine in your window and you would rather have a shelf that looks pretty and is quiet. And if you care about the climate and once you reduce your carbon footprint, and you want a technologically intelligent comment moderation machine or c m m then go to gradients dot gradient comfort gradient dot com <laughs> and sign up for the wait list exactly. to, to get one of these units and if you can't get one and your, you can't sign up for one in your city yet it will be coming to your city soon exactly so okay good yeah. I, I <laughs> <laughs> perfect and so um we're at our last bit here. Something I do with every guest on this show is ask them what or I'm kind of like, do I ask who are your three favorite founders or what are your three favorite startups? Hmm. I, I hope that they're kind of like one of the same, but it kind of varies, but I give you the optionality. Yeah. So who are your three favorite founders or what are your three favorite startups that you love and you want Everybody else to know about and love as well, which is fair because I feel like I have varying
1: answers among the like startup to founder spectrum. Mm-hmm. I want to start with other lab. I think that, like I mentioned, we spun out of other lab, and I think I'm just picking other lab because there's so many things spinning out of there that I'm super excited about. And so, other lab as an institution is like a really creative way to get new tech into the world. But obviously, Saul Griffith and the other folks there are working on a ton of exciting things. Saul is is now part of a of a group called Rewiring America, which is really looking at electrification policy as a way to decarbonize. Yeah, um, he just
0: put out a book as well, right?
1: He did, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just came out, I think, this week. Oh, really? Oh, cool. There was like a free PDF yeah. handbook, and now they have an official oh, no. published book.
0: Maybe um, I should do a climate cocktails book signing.
1: Yeah, with Saul, right? You should. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. There's another project working in a different part of the HVAC space called Sensible coming out mm-hmm. of Other Lab. Okay. Um, cool. Obviously, huge fan of Sunfolding and Delayla. Yeah. Yeah. They're working on wind. Really, Other Lab is just my way for me to pick like five of my favorite startups <laughs> instead of just one. Yeah. Because so many things interesting come out of there.
0: Yeah. I actually, um, at the Climate Tech cocktails happy hour which we had in berkeley a couple weeks ago you came to mm-hmm. and we had like over 150 people there uh, i met a entrepreneur from other lab which was really interesting and sam sam so he's he's developing or is going to develop uh floating offshore wind platforms i don't know if it's the platforms or what exactly the technology is but that, yeah. that was kind of interesting
1: yeah. yeah yeah i mean just like the the level of like creativity focus on climate impact mm-hmm. and ability to quickly iterate on prototypes and scale hardware is like it's otherwise just a very unique space mm.
0: yeah okay and then if people want to go read a few books to oh, no, i only said one startup oh i'm sorry okay keep going, <laughs> keep going. that's fine <laughs> fine let's, let's 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 do it let's yeah. do it yeah
1: okay i picked up labs my first one but really only listed like five no, no 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 yeah uh, second i'm gonna pick micro Buyer. yeah Sarah Richardson yeah. who was previously on the show yeah. and picked me which I was bad about yeah. because I Picking knew I was each going other, to pick which her. which is
0: great. And and you're both prime impactful in portfolio companies just also so true. happen to be. You know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Sarah Richardson not only incredibly technically capable but a really really amazing science communicator. I remember yeah. one of her first pitches at uh we were both in the same cohort uh of psychotronona Activate and her pitch was like she really just like was did an amazing job telling a story. Yeah. Distilling a complicated topic into what was relevant for the audience, yeah. getting the audience engaged yeah. and has like just moved mountains to get her her startup going. And so really, really inspired yeah. about the she, she's,
0: she's also done. just a badass, brilliant person. Yeah. And uh Love Microbyre and what they're doing. Like they're they're just gonna change the world. Yeah,
1: I have often just called Sarah for for advice and help. So big fan of what they're doing. And then lastly, I thought since I thought I would pick a startup that I I was watching from afar, and so I I don't know the folks at Block Power, but Mm -hmm. um, I think what Block Power is doing. Don Albert, the CEO, they're based in Brooklyn, and they're Mm -hmm. working on ways of retrofitting buildings with Mm -hmm. energy saving heat pumps faster obviously really aligned with w- what we're doing, but more on the implementation side. Yeah. And they have a real, like a, a really strong community and customer focus in the way that they do their business, which I think is unique among startups.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully they can collaborate with Gradient. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Because they're they're also working in, in New York mm-hmm. quite a bit. So yeah. uh, that'd be awesome to see. And then uh, Rapid Fire, what are three books that people should read if they want to become a... Heat and cooling nerd. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> or a th- thermo nerd, as, <laughs> as you'll say.
1: Uh, let's see. I'm going to go from least to most optimistic and from most
0: to least nerdy. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Wait. Least to most optimistic, uh, most to least nerdy. Yeah. Okay. So, so the nerds are least optimistic, is what you're saying.
1: In this case, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start with the fundamentals of heat and mass transfer
0: uh-huh.
1: by, Bergman and Levine. This was my undergrad heat transfer textbook. It's kind of where it all started. I also frequently use it to this day, use it in grad school, use it in undergrad. Our company is based on like looking at the principles of heat transfer and thermo and how we can apply them. This is technically heat transfer, not thermo. A great book, have read it many, many times. It's a textbook, though, so...
0: Yeah, so anybody who reads, understands, and loves that book should apply exactly. for a job at Gradient. Yeah, Bergman yeah. and Levine, great book. <laughs> All
1: right, number two, let's get a little bit more down to earth. There's this book called Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air that oh. we actually read in our company book club. Cool. Uh, it, yeah. I think it actually is like parallels or is a predecessor to the work Saul's doing at Rewiring America, and that it's an incredibly pragmatic data-based practical approach to clean energy mm-hmm. they do the math they do the back of the envelope calculations on a bunch of climate solutions it's also written by someone from england who like is has this like dry cheeky english sense of humor so it's a super enjoyable read mm-hmm. and also it was written at least 10 years ago and so a lot of the things that they said ended up being true and a lot of them didn't a lot of them didn't play out so it's a it's a fun like wow, we actually did much better here and oof, we did much worse there.
0: <laughs> yeah, sounds very British to me. Yeah. What's the third book?
1: The last is a book called Thermal Delight in Architecture by Lisa Heshang. I'm sure I pronounced her last name incorrectly. I love this book because of all of the things that you can read on climate and on HVAC and on building comfort, this is like the most emotional and human centric and they make a lot of amazing points in this book. One of them that's my favorite is that Keeping all of our buildings at 72 degrees Fahrenheit is like if you had an interior decorator who painted everything blue. Mm. They talk about all of the amazing comfort and emotional experiences you can have from like a cool breeze on a beach or like cool cathedral on a super hot day or like sitting by a fire when it's cold out and how we're ignoring a lot of these diverse thermal experiences when Mm -hmm. we design buildings, which is Not just important from the perspective of there's an opportunity to create better experiences, but it's also important because like we can make these experiences better in harmony with the environment, use less energy, and have less environmental impact. Mm -hmm. And so in hindsight, almost obvious, but really unique look at how we could make our thermal comfort experiences in buildings much more dynamic.
0: Mm-hmm. And speaking of diversity in thermal experiences, is there a difference between genders in terms of like how they experience heating and cooling or their preferences?
1: Yeah, I think that the fact that this kind of human-first perspective on building temperature has been ignored for so long is evident in the way our HVAC systems are today. And the best example of this, which I'm guessing you're alluding to, is that we designed thermostat set points based on tests of human biology for which all of the test subjects were white men in the military. Right. And so they're really based on metabolisms that represent a super small subset of the human population. Yeah. There's a great article, I think it was in The Atlantic, about the inherent sexism in thermostat sex points <laughs> because they were only considering <laughs> men. Uh.
0: It sounds like a protest ready to happen Yeah, uh, to me. Yeah. yeah,
1: And I mean, it's just like, it's also kind of a, a common refrain in HVAC, yeah, right? right? Like we use systems to make ourselves comfortable ignoring the effects yeah. of the climate, which then create other people or create environments that are less comfortable for other people. And so I think it's uh, far overdue for us to design yeah. our buildings in a way that's much more in harmony with the environment.
0: Yeah, it's, I think... Just another example of when this technology was created, it was created by certain people yeah. and it was therefore uh, tested on certain people and designed in a certain way for certain people. Yeah. And so going back to the beginning of our conversation, this technology, as you mentioned, has not been redesigned, yeah, redeveloped for a very long time. And so this is an opportunity to do so and to take all people into account and maximize comfort and efficiency yeah. for everybody exactly yeah
1: we really want that just like the climate movement is more and more focusing on kind of the diverse perspectives and the diverse effects of climate on different communities yeah we also want hvac to focus on not just the direct customer of HVAC systems but
0: mm-hmm. the climate and other communities that are affected by it and that's why we're here amen and I think that's a great place to end and I'm really excited to see where you all are in two years I think that people will listen back to this and be like oh wow they were such a small company then like (laughs) I'm like have a very high confidence level that Gradient is going to be one of those companies that is going to um, have a lot of traction and will be in the news raising some egregious amount of <laughs> amount of capital to expand globally and to celebrate that you matthew norton and i can sit down for a drink which he will buy <laughs> <laughs>
1: i am playing board with this with this plan
0: fantastic well uh, thank you again so much for coming back by And to do this again. And I'm so happy that we could have you here and to share what you all are doing. And we'll definitely have you back again. Great. For a third time, but (laughs) We'll wait a year. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Cool. Happy to be here. Uh, Thanks for having me, Matt. And this episode was brought to you by iCloud Backups. (laughs) (laughs)
0: i'm that's the first thing i'm gonna do when i like (laughs) end this session is i'm going to move everything to the cloud yeah (laughs) like i've got ptsd right now pretty hardcore so again thank you so much and i'll see you next time sounds good thank you so much for listening the resources that we mentioned and everything else we talked about drink recipes various people companies, so on and so forth, will all be linked in the show notes on our substack at ClimateTechCocktails.substack.com. If you want to write us, our email address is m at climatechcocktails.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at CT underscore cocktails and on Instagram, hashtag climatechcocktails. You can reach me personally by Carrier Pigeon or on my LinkedIn forward slash Matthew J. Myers. Until next time, keep the dream alive and do your part to make the world a better place for 100% of humanity. And thanks for tuning in.